Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see See what music does to people. It gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Psychology Podcast, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. I'm Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, and in each episode, I have a conversation with a guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. Today, it's great to have Dr. Martin Seligman on the podcast. Dr. Seligman is director of the Penn Positive Psychology Center, the Zellerbach Family Professor of Psychology in the Penn Department of Psychology, and director of the Penn Master of Applied Positive Psychology program. Commonly known as the founder of positive psychology, Dr. Seligman is a leading authority in the fields of positive psychology, resilience, learned helplessness, depression, optimism, and pessimism. He's also a recognized authority on interventions that prevent depression and that build strengths and well-being. He has written more than 250 scholarly publications and 20 books, including Flourish, Authentic Happiness, Learned Optimism, Character Strengths and Virtues, which was co-authored with Chris Peterson, and his autobiography, The Hope Circuit, A Psychologist's Journey from Helplessness to Optimism. Dr. Seligman, what an honor it is to chat with you today. Hey, Scott, it's good to see you again. I think it's been about two years since I saw you last, and it's a pleasure to be your guest here. Yeah, it's been a moment, as they say. Well, let me ask you, what are some of the things you are most excited about that you've worked on in the past few years? Well, I've been struggling to write a book on agency across all of human history. 
So when I looked over my work, it was basically about uh, the effect that human beings, by exerting voluntary action, could have on the world. And it occurred to me that this might vary across time and culture. And particularly, there are lots of times in human history which are stagnant, in which really nothing happens. Uh, uh, Medieval apologists, notwithstanding, uh, 400 AD to about 1400 AD is a time in the West of great stagnation. And then, starting around 1500 AD, uh, we have enormous human progress, which accelerates uh, through the Industrial Revolution and is still accelerating. So I started to wonder if what could be driving this was different beliefs about human agency. And so I've tried to look at words, concepts, philosophical beliefs, and I'm trying to write on the notion, going back to hunter-gatherers through the uh, Bronze Age, through the Hellenic concepts, through Christianity and Judaism, about agency and its waxing and waning. But the basic hypothesis is when human beings don't believe in free will and agency, there's no human progress. When human beings do believe in free will and in agency, that's when human progress occurs. So I've been struggling with this book. My eldest daughter is a historian, and uh, I sent her a 60-page outline of it, and she said it was hopeless that I know new I know new I knew no history and it was time I learned some. And so she assigned me to read the nine volume, ten thousand page Cambridge History of the World, which basically talks about uh agency, at least subtly, across time and space. So I'm on volume three now. <laughs> That's so interesting. Well, agency, so whether or not we actually have free will, it's the belief in free will. Is that right? Do you think we actually have free will? So it, it, this is not about whether or not we actually have free will, although I happen to believe we do. This is about the belief in free will. So the belief itself is a driver. And so when Augustine comes along in the fourth century and says uh, that Pelagius is a heretic, and that human beings cannot choose uh, good or evil. It's all of God's grace, a gift from God. That becomes a Christian doctrine for almost a thousand years, and it coincides with almost no material progress. And then starting around 1500, uh, Catholicism begins to change its view. Erasmus, Pico argue that human beings can participate in their own grace, that we're like toddlers, but when we fall down, God lifts us up, but we have to have motive power of our own. And that's when we see uh, human progress beginning again in the West. Mm -hmm. But it's stymied by the Reformation. The Reformation, contrary to what Protestants are talking about today, is Calvin and Luther's revolt from Erasmus claiming that we have no free will at all. And a lot of the burning at the stake and the battle 
from uh, 1525 to about uh, 1700 is over this issue of free will. And it's uh, the Dutch and the liberal Catholics who believe in it. Uh, The Calvinists, uh, the Lutherans deny it. People are burnt at the stake over it. But basically, the, the Dutch Protestants win, and we get Methodism and modern Protestantism, which is a very strongly believes in human efficacy and will. So that's, that's, more, than, that's more than you want to know about what I'm working on now. <laughs> no, it's, a, it's very interesting, and it's a lot I, I didn't know about. And, you know, I try to look at through threads of your own research, and I think about your original work in grad school in learned helplessness and how far you've come from that research so far that you argue recently that you got it backwards. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but importantly, learned helplessness was about human efficacy and not having human efficacy. And indeed, Mm. its agency is the red thread that's run through my work. Importantly, uh, Steve Mayer has convinced me that we were wrong in our characterization of animals and humans in the original helplessness experiments. So what we believed was that rats, dogs, and people, when they had inescapable events, learned that nothing they did mattered. And that's why they did so badly. Uh, Mayer has convincing data that the dorsal refei nucleus, little 50,000 cell structure in rats, 150,000 cell structure in human beings, is the default activity when we face aversive events. And that the default is helplessness. Helplessness is unlearned, but what we learn is that we can do something. And what makes uh, human beings very special is we have a, a frontal cortex, which is all, all about learning hope, learning that what we do matters, learning that the future can be better than the past. So we had it backwards. The, the action is in learning that you can do something. And if Steve is right, the default condition of mammals when bad things happen is to curl up and be helpless. Were they dogs that you originally did your research on? Were they dogs or rats? The very first experiments were dogs, but very soon uh, became rats, mice, cats, and uh, most importantly, the human helplessness work started about uh, three years after the first uh, work in animals. I was worried so, in the animal research that it was some artifact about rats or dogs, but it turns mm-hmm. out to be uh, highly replicable uh, across every mammalian species that's been tried in. If they had a more developed prefrontal cortex, some of your original conclusions might have been different. All, all mammals, as far as I understand, have some prefrontal cortex. Uh, but what humans have is massive uh, prefrontal cortex. And uh, a prefrontal cortex that's affected by words. By mm-hmm. uh, And so that makes a big difference. We can learn hope not just by uh, doing things that succeed. We can be taught about hope. We can culturally accrue hope. 
So in a sense, you went from learned helplessness to learned hope, hopefulness. That's the way I would characterize uh, first my own life. Yeah. And that's what the hope circuit is about. Secondly, uh, psychology as a whole. So when I started in psychology, it was all about fear, conflict, struggle, competition. And uh, I was part of a movement that changed it to be also about meaning, control, love, engagement, uh, accomplishment, success, and hope. And the third thing that happened in my lifetime was the, the world got better. So my life changed for the better. Psychology changed to include uh, positive topics. Uh, and this was legitimized by massive changes in human progress. Hey, everyone. If you find the themes we cover on the Psychology Podcast interesting and enlightening, you might be interested in my new book, Transcend, The New Science of Self-Actualization. The book is the culmination of my journey to scientifically discover the factors that can lead us to optimal health, growth, creativity, peak experiences, and deep fulfillment. I believe we can still manage to have peak experiences, the most wondrous moments that make life worth living, regardless of our current life circumstances. We can choose growth. For more, you can visit transcend-book.com. That's transcend-book.com with a hyphen between the word transcend and the word book. If you get a chance to read the book, it'd be great if you could leave a review on Amazon, tweet about it, or share the book with friends. I truly hope this book can help people get through these tough times and realize that we all have greater resiliency, creativity, and potential within us than we ever realized. Okay, now back to the show. Well, so I, w- I want to go back a, a second here. So when you're, you're age 30, and you have this dream that changes the trajectory of your career and what you decide you want to do. Can you talk a little about that dream and, and how that impacted you? Uh, I'll give you a, one quote from that dream. Why is everyone playing with cards? Yeah, so I've always paid attention to dreams. In fact, I think the best paper I ever wrote is a theory of dreaming that almost no one has ever read. In uh, the early 1970s, I had become a professor, young professor at the University of Pennsylvania, and uh, the work on learned helplessness in uh, animals and humans was becoming well known. And my mentor was a, a, a middle-aged psychiatrist named Aaron Beck. And uh, he and I would have lunch um, about once a month. We still do. Uh, Beck is now 98 years old. I'm 77. And we still have great lunches. We're doing them now on uh, Google Meet and Zoom. And uh, so we met for lunch at Kelly and Cohn's. And uh, uh, Tim, who's ordinarily a very gentle person, uh, said to me, Marty, if you continue doing what you're doing, you're going to waste your life. And I choked on my grilled Reuben and thought that Tim must be wrong. But a few months later, I had a a dream that one would call a numinous dream, a very salient dream, in which I was uh, walking up the ramp at the Guggenheim Museum. And on my right, there were rooms. And in the rooms, people were playing with cards. And I asked the question, 
why, why is everyone playing with cards? Uh, whereupon the roof of the Guggenheim opened and the Godhead appeared. And uh, you'll be interested to know, Scott, that that God is a, a elderly male with a white beard and a booming voice. And what God said very loudly to me in this dream was, well, Seligman, at least you're starting to ask the right questions. And uh, that coincided with what Beck had said, and it told me the time had come to change my research from animal models of psychopathology to uh, what I now do, uh, human research, longitudinal research, Mm -hmm. research not only on the bad stuff that cripples life, but research on what uh, builds life as well, what makes life worth living. When I look back, the dream and the uh, uh, choking on my grilled Reuben with Tim Beck were turning points in my research I was about uh, 30 years old at the time. Wow. That's, that's, that's historic. Well, you started working on optimism before you founded Positive Psychology. Now, what was this, what was the research, why did you get interested in optimism? How'd that happen? Well, I thought I was working on pessimism, so I'll tell you the story of how it happened. In our helplessness experiments, both in animals and people, we found that only about two-thirds who got inescapable events, uh, unsolvable problems, inescapable shock, uh, inescapable noise, only about two-thirds became helpless. And the other one-third of people and animals didn't become helpless. So I began to wonder, what was it about some people that made them so resilient and so resistant uh, to depression and to becoming helpless? So we did about 10 years of research on this question, and we basically found that it was optimism, that people who believed that when bad events occurred to them, the bad events were transient, they're temporary, the bad events were local, just as one situation, the bad events were controllable. These were the optimists, and these were the people who we could not make helpless easily in the laboratory. Conversely, uh, people who came to the laboratory with the belief that when bad events occur, they're permanent, they're pervasive, and there's nothing they can do about them, were the people who became helpless at the drop of a hat. So the story was that pessimists become helpless easily. They get depressed at about twice the rate of optimistic people, and optimists uh, are resilient. When bad events occur, uh, they recover, and they don't become helpless in laboratory easily at all. Wow. That must have been quite a, quite a stark contrast from the learned helplessness research. Just, just as a human being, to hear these, these um, dogs yelling and in pain, that must have been hard for you, right? as an experimenter and hearing all that, the suffering of those animals? Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm a dog lover, and yeah. it's very difficult experiments to do. I found myself in a laboratory at age 21 that was doing shock experiments with dogs, and as soon as I could get out of it, I stopped doing experiments with dogs, did experiments with rats for a while, 
also difficult to do, much easier to do experiments with people. So the 90s, we're in the 90s now, and you decide, I'm going to run for president of APA, the American Psychological Association, and people told you, forget about it. Um, candidates are already lined up in advance. The order of succession is already designated. Why did you decide to run for APA president? Why persevere when people told you that? Well, I, in about 1993, Consumer Reports contacted me and said they were going to do, they usually do studies of washing machines and automobiles and get uh, consumer ratings of them. And they said they wanted to do psychotherapy. And they asked me if I would become their main consultant for a consumer reports study of whether or not people thought uh, psychotherapy was effective. Now, I had been a psychotherapy researcher, both drugs and psychotherapy, but I uh, was involved in doing uh, small, essentially, uh, laboratory and clinical studies of cognitive mm -hmm. therapy and the like. Uh, but this was an opportunity to send a, a questionnaire out to 100,000 people, uh, many of whom had had psychotherapy, and ask them to rate it. And so we got back uh, tens of thousands of responses and analyzed them. And I was shocked by the results. They're completely different from the results we found in uh, 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 essentially uh, outcome studies of psychotherapy. Uh, the first big difference was that 80 to 90 percent of people in the Consumer Reports study thought that psychotherapy was very effective for them, whereas in the uh, laboratory research on psychotherapy, uh, only about 60 percent of people are affected uh, markedly against a 40 percent placebo rate generally. The first thing we found that people like psychotherapy much more than the laboratory told us they did. The second big difference was that with clinical outcome studies, there's high specificity. So flooding works well on obsessive, obsessive compulsive disorders. Uh, exposure works well on therapy. Cognitive behavior therapy works well on depression. But in the Consumer Reports study, everything worked about equally well. So once we had those results and published them, it occurred to me that these were results that would be very important to the main constituency of the American Psychological Association. And indeed, I decided to run for president based on the Consumer Reports results. And in spite of the fact that everyone told me I couldn't possibly win, that uh, uh, the next three presidents had been de designated by the people who ran APA, I won by the largest margin in uh, modern history. It's, and it's not like you went into that saying, I'm going to create a new field that revolutionizes psychology and creates all these things. At what point did you think, well, I'm going to make this my platform, positive psychology? It didn't have something to do with your daughter, Nikki? Well, it wasn't my platform going in, but it, it right. was going out. It basically, I found myself asking the question, what, what, did, what was missing in psychology? And what was present in something psychology could, could be proud of 
was that psychotherapy actually worked, that it helped uh, a good number of people and it was well-liked. But what psychology was missing was what makes life worth living. Psychology mm. was all about what, what cripples life and trying to get rid of the things that cripple life. But I think the belief that the best we can ever do in life, which is what Freud told us in Schopenhauer, is not to be miserable, uh, that that belief is empirically false, morally insidious, and a personal and political dead end. And so I began to think about the question of could there be an effective psychology of uh, the good life, of what makes life worth living, not just getting rid of what cripples life. And so that became the driving force for my next uh, 20 years of work. I see. And then when was this, this gardening incident that you talk about with Nikki? Oh, that was a, a, a emblematic turning point. That occurred in, uh, I think, about 1996. I had just become president-elect-elect elect, and was wondering uh, what my theme might be. And uh, Nikki had turned five years old. Nikki, by the way, is just getting her PhD from Fordham now in clinical psychology. So uh, she's uh, gone into the family business in some ways. Nikki had just turned five and we were gardening together. And Nikki was throwing weeds in the air and dancing and singing and having a great time. And I'm a worker bee and I shouted at her and I said, get to work, Nikki. And she looked at me and she walked away and she came back and she said, Daddy, can, can I talk to you? And I said, sure. He said, uh, Daddy, uh, do you remember um, I was my fifth birthday was about two weeks ago. So this must have been in early September of 1996. I would have to guess then from that, counting backwards. Uh, uh, do you remember before my fifth birthday that I was a whiner, that I whined all the time? And I said, yeah. He said, well, have you noticed in the last two weeks I haven't whined once? And I said, yeah, yeah, you've really been a pleasure. He said, well, Daddy, I, I decided on my fifth birthday that I wasn't going to whine anymore. And uh, that was the hardest thing I've ever done. And it succeeded. And if I can stop whining, you can stop being such a grouch. And indeed, that was the emblematic inspiration for me of founding a movement which was not about what was wrong, but a movement about yeah. what was right in life. Well, I want to take the spirit of positive psychology and ask you, what are your top character strengths? What are your top three character strengths? I th Last time I looked, they were um, leadership, uh, critical intelligence and uh, love of uh, love of beauty. Bravery might have been up there, but I'm not sure. But importantly, it was uh, uh, leadership, creativity, uh, critical intelligence, and love of beauty. Yeah, I would. I would, after spending four years with you, I, I'd say that makes a lot of sense. You often got touched by by uh, beautiful things, even just listening to classical music. I know 
really grabs you. Bad day today. I haven't listened to any music. I think mm. when this is done, I'll go for a walk and listen to music. You should. You should. I highly recommend it. Well, so positive psychology. Right now, a lot of people in the age of uh, this coronavirus uncertainty, what can positive psychology offer people? This is partly why I reached out to you to have have you on my podcast because I heard you do this thing for the Mapsters with Aaron Beck and what you said inspired me. So I want you to be able to inspire the the thousands and thousands of people listening to you right now as well. Well, I, I have some uh, a pretty firm hypothesis about uh, what positive psychology says, both about the, what you should do during the pandemic and then the way out, what you, what you should do after. So the background for this is uh, to split different aspects of positive psychology. So I'm going to split here between positive emotion, which is being cheerful, merry, having fun and smiling a lot, having a good time, and optimism, which is not a feeling state. Optimism is a belief about the future, a belief that the future will be better. Now, let's take a look at what we know about the effects of those two different aspects of positive psychology. Well, on the first, positive emotion, and the jargon here is positive affectivity, that is, there are some people who are highly positively affective, uh, Scott and I are not among them. Uh, these are people who smile a lot, who are merry, uh, who laugh a lot, uh, and have a good time. Sheldon Cohn decided about 15 years ago to ask the question about the relationship of positive affectivity and of optimism uh, to viral infection. And he did, uh, he used three different kinds of uh, rhinoviruses. I think two of them are coronaviruses, if I'm not mistaken. And he took, uh, I think, a couple of hundred volunteers, paid them $300 a piece, and squirted rhinoviruses into their nose and asked mm -hmm. who got a bad cold and who didn't, and how long did the cold last. And interestingly, mm -hmm. the main variable that worked was positive affectivity. People who were po high positive affect, who smiled a lot, laughed, were merry people, uh, got shorter colds and uh, less severe colds. And he measured this, by the way, by the weight of the weight of the mucus. So this is not mm -hmm. self-report. Uh, interestingly, optimism had no effect. So optimistic people uh, got colds at the same rate as pessimistic people. So the first lesson from Sheldon Cohn is that if you want to avoid the, the infection during the pandemic, the hypothesis is, you sh as hard as it sounds, you should have a lot of fun. We bought a puppy, for example, listening to music, having sex, having good food, do finding all the things that give you joy and make you smile. So that's part one. If I had to make a guess, the formulation from positive psychology, have as much fun as you possibly can during this difficult time. Then the question is, this pandemic will wane. It's probably, the first wave of it is probably waning now in the United States. And then the question is, um, who will recover? Who will lead us? Uh, what kind of personality is needed uh, 
uh, for resilience? And the answer there is not merry, smiling, laughing people. It's people with hope and optimism. So the massive literature on optimism says these are the people who rebuild. So, Scott, the, the underlying lesson here is during the pandemic, have as much fun as you possibly can, as difficult as it sounds. But as the pandemic wanes, it's optimism and hope that's going to matter. You've criticized this happyology of positive psychology, but you're saying yeah. let's allow ourselves, let's give ourselves permission to have some happyology right now. This is the very first time I've ever in, endorsed I know. the smiley face. So as you know, whenever I speak to journalists about positive psychology, the first thing I say is don't put the smiley face on the cover. Well, I think the smiley face matters right now. Agreed. So you made a you made a comment, and maybe I misunderstood. You said me and you are not the uh, the the smiley uh, have fun kind of got people. Is that right? I'm low positive affective, uh, and I have to go out of my way. Uh, listen, listening to meatloaf, having a puppy, uh, 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 cooking good food, gardening during the pandemic. So I'm. Uh, massively uh, trying as hard as it is uh, to have fun during the pandemic. Some people have fun more easily than I do, uh, but that's what I'm working on. I've I've, uh, even been dancing a little. That's awesome. Yeah. And so is your perception, your perception of me as well, positive affective as well? Yeah. So uh, I've always seen you as a sort of like me, basically glum, and that we had to work at positive affectivity. Am I wrong about you? I think so. I think you are wrong about me. Maybe we've never partied together. (laughs) No. (laughs) No, I've I've partied with almost none of my students and postdocs and co-workers ever. So you must have taken some of the positive affectivity tests. How do you come out? I'm pretty high. I'm pretty high in positive affect. But but I want to just comment on something I noted about you because I think that you know your your personality has changed. You, I mean, you know, throughout your whole course of your whole life. But I can only speak the past four years or so. I mean, I th- I would almost categorize you these days as naturally positive affect. You you don't you know I don't I don't know if you you if you think that you've had uh, quite a transformation over the years. But my own perception of you is. Your default state now is quite, seems quite friendly and positive affect. I've measured it over the years, both optimism and positive affect, and you're right. So I've gone from being pessimistic and negatively affective to being quite optimistic and not particularly negatively affective anymore. So I am better at having fun than I used to be. So I think that it'd be helpful in this kind of rest of this conversation, talk a little about what are some critiques of positive psychology that you've addressed? You know, you've talked about strong criticisms and weak criticisms. What's a strong criticism of the field that uh, people have leveled against positive psychology? Well, I think the best criticism is that it, uh, it, it positive psychology says that it's in the head. And uh, the best criticism is that a good world is not in people's head. A good world is in the world, and that if we want to allocate money uh, to make people happier, it's not doing positive psychology things. 
It's rather more income and uh, the like. And so that's a good criticism. And the answer to it is, interestingly, that more and more income, both for individuals and for nations, uh, asymptotes uh, quickly. And that in the United States, at between eighty dollars and $100,000 a year, increases in income don't produce increases in life satisfaction. So that's a good criticism. And I think the answer to it is that below the safety net, what we really want to care about is increasing people's income and the world. Mm -hmm. Above the safety net, more and more, we want to ask the question of PERMA, engagement, good relationships, meaning and accomplishment, rather than more money. So that's uh, the best critique I know. Uh, The second good critique, which I think really is insidious and false, but it's uh, catchy, is that happy people don't care about the world. That happy people are blithe and they care about themselves. And uh, Barbara, this is basically Barbara Ehrenreich's main critique of positive psychology, that uh, happy pe- we don't want to make people happy. We want to make them realistic rather than happy. Mm-hmm. And uh, the answer to that is there are quite a few studies now of uh, altruism, uh, who volunteers, who contributes money, uh, who works hard for other people. And mm-hmm. uh, the strong weight of that evidence is that it's happy people. Depressed people turn inward. Uh, They tend to be less altruistic. They tend not to volunteer. And, uh, you know, almost all of your listeners who have been depressed at one time or another know that when you're depressed, you you turn to yourself uh, and you become number one. Uh, And so the second criticism that uh, making people happy will make them bad citizens is 180 degrees wrong. So those are the... Mm -hmm. Uh, those are my two favorite criticisms. What's your favorite criticism? Uh, my favorite is that the field ignores suffering. So maybe it went in the opposite direction in trying to correct the record that the field focused too much on suffering, but it it ignores those at the very the most vulnerable in our society, those in the lower um, rungs that that really just want their most basic needs met. How do you respond to that? Yeah, well, I agree with that. I mean, by definition. The field came out of clinical psychology and 30 years of my life had to do with the relief of suffering. So uh, I take relief of suffering very seriously, but the field by definition is not about the relief of suffering. It's not about removing what cripples life. And I definitely think we should be doing that. Uh, Positive psychology is not a replacement for clinical psychology or or for negative psychology, uh, but rather positive psychology says, in addition to caring about relief of suffering, uh, let's ask the question, uh, what builds the good life? And part of that is certainly removing suffering, and that's what psychology has traditionally done. Positive psychology says, in addition, we need to ask about more than just the relief of suffering. Right. What do you think of humanistic psychology? You knew I was going to ask you that question. Uh, it, it hasn't played much of a role in my life. 
So um, when I was an undergraduate, I read From, and I remember meeting Al Ellis. And uh, 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 then I went through laboratory psychology and clinical psychology. And uh, in the invention of positive psychology, I was reminded of humanistic psychology, uh, but hadn't read much of it. So most of the humanistic psychology I read was kind of uh, in response to the critique of humanists, uh, humanistic psychologies of positive psychology, which basically just said it was uh, uh, old wine in new bottles. Uh, mm-hmm. I went back and read uh, um, more and more Maslow and Rogers and the like, and uh, I liked them a lot. Uh, I think the difference between positive psychology and humanistic psychology um, is that it's uh, um, more rigorous. And so positive psychology for me arose out of uh, laboratory and uh, longitudinal experimental and social psychology. And it would have been dishonest of me to cite uh, humanistic psychology since that played almost no role and I was pretty much ignorant of it in the founding Mm -hmm. of positive psychology. But in retrospect, um, Maslow and Rogers were deeply on to very much the same thing long before I was, but uh, they weren't scientists, essentially. Uh, and I guess we added seven-point scales and laboratory experiments and rigor to many of the premises that uh, Maslow uh, began with. That's a very fair answer. And uh, so I assume you didn't, you didn't read a lot of Maslow then in the 50s and 60s. Yeah, by the way, you did a great job in, in your book of uh, characterizing Maslow's life. And I found, I I just learned a lot more about Maslow from your book. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm trying to, I'm trying to put some of those ideas on a firm scientific foundation. So I I really appreciate that. And there's no reason for, uh, for, for modern day humanistic psychologists and positive psychologists to not work together on a, on a scientific foundation. There's no reason why we can't work together. I love it. I agree completely. I think it's a historic accident uh, partly due to my own ignorance, but also partly due to the uh, insularity and the strange scientific methods that some of the humanistic psychologies uh, advocated that the two disciplines were so far apart. Yeah, I agree. I agree. There was a lot of a lot of just words, you know, put forth that were beautiful words, beautiful words, you know, like in The Art of Loving, Eric Fromm, The Art of Loving is a beautiful book, but there's no, not a lot of scientific rigor in it. So I'm trying to resurrect it and put some of that on a scientific foundation. So would you say that you are a natural in psychology in the sense, because you play bridge as well, is that right? Can you compare and contrast your bridge talent to your psychology talent? I can answer that pretty definitively since I spend about half my time playing bridge and about half my time doing psychology. Doing psychology is easy for me. The cards just fly off my hands. You know, when I hear you talking about creativity, I really understand what you're saying, and I can often see to the bottom of it. Uh, psychological questions uh, become na- are naturals for me. Uh, playing bridge, however, is labor. I have to sit there and sweat and reason it out and calculate probabilities, whereas some of the great partners I play with in bridge, the cards just fly off their hands. They just know what the right move is without being able to explain it. So in bridge, 
there are clearly naturals, and uh, I've been privileged to partner quite a few of them. And then there are students like me for whom it's sweat. In psychology, I'm a natural. I love it. It's easy. But many of my students are students. It's hard for them. So that's the distinction that uh, I think is a real one. By the way, it's not about about success. So in Bridge, uh, some of the students who sweat it out are just as successful as the naturals. And in psychology, some of the uh, students are just as successful as the naturals. Uh, And naturals are often failures. Grit matters a bit as well, in addition. Time on task matters. Yeah, for me, the, the operative part of grit is how much time you spend at it. And indeed, uh, there's a lot to be said for time on task, particularly if you're a student, as in bridge. So I play about four hours of bridge a day, and over 60 years, I, it's become easier for me, but it's still hard. Uh, psychology, which I spend about the same amount of time on, has always been easy for me. So talent and natural, being natural, that's different than creativity. What is creativity? I'm asking this to you because I know you have a new theory, a new paper. I, I'd much rather know uh, what you think about it since you you know and have written uh, more deeply than I have about creativity. I like uh, your new paper. I, I want to say, I don't know if you've published it yet, but... Uh, no, it's still, you know, it's, it's dormant. Uh, and it's dormant because I want to create... Uh, essentially courses to see if it works. So it's just an idea. It basically says that in science and maybe in art, but only in science I'm uh, hypothesizing about, there are five different kinds of creative ideas, uh, not just one. Uh, The first is uh, uh, integration. That's seeing that two things that look like they're different are really the same, basically uh, uh, Newton and the apple story. Uh, Newton, uh, the real part of the story is that when he was back at the farm during the uh, uh, plague, uh, he uh, the moon was rising behind the family apple tree and uh, one of the apples occluded the moon perfectly and Newton thought that uh, could it be that what draws the apple to the earth is the same thing that keeps the moon in orbit. What Newton was really great at was integration, seeing that two things that looked different were the same. Uh, He did the same thing with fundamental colors. The second kind of creativity uh, is differentiation. That is seeing that two things that look like they're the same are really different. And so uh, uh, dividing smallpox into uh, uh, variola major, which was deadly, and variola minor, which had the same symptoms but was not deadly, was an example of that. Uh, The periodic table of the elements is an example of differentiation. Uh, The uh, third kind is figure ground reversal. And that is uh, taking the basic premise of a science and reversing it and asking what's the case. And the 
Copernican revolution, uh, putting the sun at the center of the solar system, not the earth, uh, was a, an example of that. Positive psychology is an example of that, which says, hey, the answer is not in the clinic, but it's in normality. The fourth kind is distality, and that's mm -hmm. being able to imagine things that are very different from the here and now. So Einstein and Tesla were wonderful imaginers of space and time and machines. And the fifth kind for me is creative accidents itself, like the discovery of uh, 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 antibacterials uh, in which you just come upon something. Uh, discovery of radiation was similar. So, Scott, that's kind of where I am about it. But for me, this is just idle thought. And so I'm beginning to ask the question with a company called BetterUp, uh, oh, yeah. uh, giving, giving courses on each of these five different kinds of creativity within uh, the business setting, uh, depending on what the company needs, integration, differentiation, figure ground reversal, and seeing if that helps creativity. So probably not going to really do much with this theory until I can find that you can actually uh, change these things for the better. Fair enough. But what I like about it and what I think that we both criticize about some of the field is that there's a lot more to creativity than what's measured by the existing creativity tests that exist, like tests of divergent thinking. Divergent thinking tests don't get at the quality of the thought, right? So they might measure the yeah. quantity, but not uh, the extent to which you have, have looked at it. So it's, it's cool stuff. And you've also talked about the importance. This is something you stressed uh, all four years I worked with you, the importance of the sense of the audience. That's not picked up by existing tests of creativity either, right? Yeah, although uh, the third criteria of creativity, uh, that is usefulness, seems to me really quite important that there, yeah. there really is a market and an audience and it's a part of creativity is not just originality, but that there's an audience for the originality. Mm -hmm. I think surprisingness, uh, I don't, what do you think? Of, I think surprisingness, uh, counterintuitive, counterintuitivity is really another important thing that Simonton points to. I don't, what's your view on mm -hmm. surprisingness? How do you separate that from the ability to connect dots that other people don't connect? Is that similar to it? Well, that's one kind of surprisingness. Another kind is figure ground reversal, which says people, hey, mm -hmm. your basic premise is wrong. So it's not the connecting of dots. It's rather sh the shock value. Uh, we were working together on prospection, saying to yeah. people uh, that... Uh, it's not enough just to know about the past and the present, uh, that we should start with thinking about the future has shock value. And I don't think that's really the connection of dots. I don't think so either. It, it doesn't seem like quite the same thing. Yeah, you know, there's the term of disruptors. A lot of creativity, creative people are disruptors and they disrupt this sort of status quo yeah, of ideas. It's not a formula for being popular but it is a formula for getting work done 
that asks about the basic premises. You know, you've said in your career that your one of your ambitions is to not be boring, right? To quote, not be boring. Do you think yeah. creative, that's also a, a prerequisite for being a creative human being? Well, that's a good question. So creativity is uh, almost by definition not boring. So surprisingness is part of uh, not being boring. Uh, yeah, it, it's a good question. So yeah, I uh, not being boring may be very similar to being surprising. Yeah. yeah, I think so. I think so. So to be a disruptor for a second, and the future of psychotherapy, you see prospection as being perhaps a future of psychotherapy and not focusing so much on the past, but helping people focus more in the future? Is that yeah, the one, idea? one of the privileges of having lunch with Beck once a month at age nine, 98 is that he's come around, I think, to the view of the importance of prospection uh, and positivity mm-hmm. in psychotherapy. So uh, I think anxiety and depression are uh, right on their surface not about the past or the present, they're about the future. You're anxious about what might happen and you're depressed about what you, uh, that the future is bleak. So it's so Mm. bizarre that the psychotherapies for anxiety and depression have neglected the future orientation of them and concentrated on the past and the present. Beautiful. Okay, so last, uh, to end here, is there anything you want to bring up, any... Anything you want to tell people to set records straight? I know there was some controversy with APA and the and and applications of your work. And um, is there anything at all you want to address or to talk about here at the end? Well, to the extent this conversation has intrigued people, I have the satisfaction of having written an autobiography, The Hope Circuit, which uh, warts and all tells the story of the trajectory in my life. And um, Scott was a reviewer of it. And uh, uh, I recommend it to you. Thank you. I also, by the way, recommend Scott's excellent book to you, particularly (laughs) The Sailboat in his book. (laughs) Thanks, Marty. Um, I I just want to personally thank you for uh, giving me the chance that you gave me to work at the Positive Psychology Center to teach positive psychology at Penn. And those those were four of uh, the most uh, meaningful years of my entire existence so far in life. So I I just want to really thank you. And thank you to all the work you've done for everyone else. You're You're welcome, Scott. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, please add a rating and review of the podcast on iTunes and subscribe to the Psychology Podcast YouTube channel as we're really trying to increase our viewership on YouTube. In fact, many of these episodes are in video format on YouTube, so you'll definitely want to check out that channel. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the podcast and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity.
The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love Love at at First first listen. Listen. This season... We're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.